with people. I remember as an example sitting with a man some, some years ago now and he was pouring down tears as he sat there and I listened to him pour his heart out to me asking me would I help him fix his marriage which just seemed to be over. And I was really surprised because this fellow, when I'd seen him before, he didn't come to church, but I'd seen him, I think I baptised a couple of his children. He always seemed to be on top of things. He always seemed to be um, very self-confident, very sure about himself. But he realised he'd taken his wife for granted for many, many years and he, it was now too late. He now knew he loved his wife and he wanted to re-establish that relationship with her and he was clutching at any possibility that might come up. But unfortunately, he just couldn't retrieve his marriage. He came to me to talk to me uh, when things basically had already happened. He wanted to try. His wife didn't want to try. And in the end, she severed their relationship and they left him. And she left him for somebody else. Well, our new series of sermons on Hosea, which we're starting tonight, they're also focused on a failed marriage as... Uh, introduced to tonight and they're going to take us way back in time as Mike said um, nearly 800 years before Jesus and we're going to meet Hosea the prophet we're going to meet his wife Gomer we're going to meet his three children in the process and we're going to hear God speaking to him and speaking to his people in the most incredible ways and you might find yourself a little bit shocked as you learn the extent of his wife's unfaithfulness to him. And you might also catch yourself marvelling at his own continuing love and commitment to her. That's Hosea's love to his wife. And parallel to all of this, as we see the human marriage here, we see over here um, what's happening with God's people and why God is so unhappy with them. We, we're confronted there with the reality and the, and the awfulness of God's judgment when his people refuse to give up their unfaithfulness. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, we also see the, the overwhelming magnificence of God's love. Magnificent because there's nothing else like God's love and there is nothing that can stand in its way. So this is a little introduction to Hosea. Can you see we're going to be looking at some pretty significant things? Um, let's get a little bit of his background first. Not much there, I'm sorry. Uh, some of the prophets have oodles and oodles of things to say about them, but not Hosea. He was a contemporary of Amos that you might have heard of. Um, roughly the same time, preaching to uh, roughly the same sort of groups of people. Um, do you remember that in King Solomon's, after King Solomon had died and his son came to the throne, there was a big split in the kingdom. So he ended up with a northern part and a southern part. Well, Amos was um, taking God's word to the northern part, to Israel. And um, they were living at his stage in a time of peace and prosperity. The really big nations like Assyria and Egypt and Babylon... Uh, they weren't beating up on the small countries at that stage because they had lots of internal uh, strife of their own. Kings were being killed by people and um, it, it was pretty difficult for them. So they were leaving the smaller countries like Israel alone and it had become quite, quite prosperous in Israel. They'd actually been able to extend their own borders, you know, become the little, little, little big man. Um, and as they did, uh, they became more and more actively involved in 
the Baal worship that was practiced uh, amongst all the Canaanites around them. And Baal worship was an attempt to make Baal uh, give you a prosperous life. Good crops, good weather, lots of children, all that sort of thing. But Baal worship involved uh, acting out that prosperity so that um, down at the Baal temple were cult prostitutes that the Israelites would go down and be involved with as part of the worship. And this was one of the big parts of the problem that God had with them. But it wasn't just the only thing. The community of um, Hosea had basically turned its back on God. He was no longer interested really in what he had to say to them at all. And so Hosea in his book is addressing covenant unfaithfulness in the extreme. This is not just, you know, you've been naughty. This is covenant unfaithfulness, deep, wide, uh, broad and extreme. And God, and we're not surprised, are we, in chapter 1? In chapter 1, mind you, the very beginning of the book, we're not surprised that God, even there at the start, is announcing he's had enough. That's it. The word that comes from God, as I said, is to the northern half of the country, the Israel half. And if you have a look at verses 2 to 9, you'll see what you've got there is, a, is we might describe that as a soul-shattering word of judgment, because that's what it is. It's a word of judgment which, just, which will just rain down on them and break them. And what God is doing is he's using the present moral and spiritual state of Hosea's marriage and family in which Hosea experienced much hurt and lots of disappointment and lots of sadness with regard to his wife. He's using his marriage to paint a picture of his bride, that is, the people of Israel, to whom he was um, pictorially involved as uh, the groom. And he's painting there a a picture of a woeful moral and spiritual state of these people. And it doesn't take long to see that that's what's going on. Now, with Hosea, it had all started quite well. I think think this video got it right. Um, When God says here, go and take to yourself an adulterous wife, I don't think he's saying, just go down the street and find a a, a lady of the night and bring her back and marry her and she can be your wife. I don't think he's he's not saying that, I don't think. Um, What he's saying is, marry a girl... But know that this girl will prove to be quite unfaithful to you. Not just unfaithful, but deeply and um, continuously unfaithful to you. So he marries Goma. And everything seems fine at the beginning. Um, They were intimately joined together in marriage. Um, marriage, The marriage bond, of course, is, is humanly speaking, the, the, the greatest human bond that we can share in. And when there's a marriage that's working really well, it's a wonderful thing to, to, to see and to share in. And they'd, they'd um, proclaim their exclusive commitment to each other. But now, as we see in chapter 1, it had all collapsed in upon itself in the face of his wife's blatant adultery. And the extent of that unfaithfulness as regards the land, the people, is there in chapter 2. And Ben is going to uh, open that up for us next Sunday. Do pray for him 
as he prepares uh, chapter 2, we're going to see that it's pretty shocking. And the extent of the nation's adulterous unfaithfulness to God is also shocking, more so. See in verse 2 the way God describes it. He says, the land, that's the people, is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. They departed from the Lord on the basis of their vilest adultery. And as you listen to to the utter completeness of God's judgment, he is basically coming down upon them with everything he has. You cannot miss the fact that there comes a point when God's patience reaches, reaches its limit, and that's what's happened here. That's where he's at with the people of Israel in Hosea's generation. It's a pretty strong start, isn't it? It makes us sit up and take, take notice. We don't often see God coming in such um, clear and, and um, impending judgment, uh, but we certainly see it here. The judgment here is an extreme measure taken in an extreme situation. And we ask ourselves, well, what does that mean? Uh, have a look at verses 2 to 9. There's a the sort of recurring pattern. You may not have seen it, but it goes like this. There are four, four areas, and, and God actually says to Isaiah, I want you to do this, and then he says, and this is why. He does it four times. Have a look at verse 2. I want you to go and marry an adulterous wife, Hosea. Marry a girl who will become adulterous, who will become unfaithful to you. Why? Because she will highlight what's happening amongst the people as a whole nation. I want them to catch the seriousness of what they're doing by putting such a severe example in their faces. The second one is in verse 4. Uh, when uh, they do get married and they have their first child, it's a son. And God says, I want you to call his name Jezreel. You might say, well, that's a bit out of left field. What's that name mean? What? There's always a significance to names in, in the prophets and in, in most of the scriptures. And there's no um, shortage of that here. Uh, Jezreel is one of those words that conjures up all sorts of things. It basically means God sows. And that, that'll become, you see how that's important later on. But the name Jezreel also rings of something that happened in history. Quite some time before this uh, generation, um, there'd been a king named Ahab. Remember Ahab and Jezebel? He was one of the most ungodly kings that Israel ever experienced. He put to death many of God's people. He chased the the prophets and put them to death. Uh, He was just an awful king and he reigned for a long time. And God said, when he'd had enough, he said to um, a man named Jehu, that he should go and uh, rid the land of this man, Ahab, Jezebel, and those who were supporting him. And so he did. He went and killed them all. But he went way beyond that. There was a visiting group with him at the time. If my memory um, is accurate, it was the, the king of Judah. And he killed the king. And they were also in a small town and he killed 70 of the members of the town. And so he gained a reputation of being a man of blood and that blood had been spilt in Jezreel. And wherever there was a battle, it was usually in Jezreel because that was the, the best place to go and have a battle, you know. If you want to have a battle, you go to Jezreel. 
And so Jezreel, everyone knew when you said Jezreel, all these things were conjured up in people's minds. And God said to them, it's, it's historically time for me to, um, to pay Israel back for what Jehu did. And that's pretty awful. But it's not as awful as the end of the sentence. Have a read of the end, end of the sentence. He says, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. We say, whoa, what? <laughs> Come on, God. You have been guarding your people and the line that so it keeps on going for hundreds and hundreds of years. You've pulled them out of the fire. How many times when women couldn't have children and therefore the line couldn't keep going and, and you gave them children even though they were barren. You've done incredible things and now you're saying you're going to bring it to a finish. You're going to bring Israel to an end. The third one identifies that God's love and forgiveness, which has always been there with him. In fact, do you remember the the refrain that runs through the covenant whenever it's talked about? We saw it in Revelation quite often, particularly towards the end, where God said, I will be there, God, and they will be my people. That's the covenant theme. I will be their God, they will be my people. And hear what God is saying to them here. You are no longer loved and I can no longer forgive you. And it's with the birth of the daughter that that becomes apparent. And the fourth one follows on from what I was just saying because the fourth one is the, is the second son and they had to call the second son not my people. Not my people. Why? Because God intends to end the covenant relationship between him and Israel. Now let's just think about this for a little bit because this is pretty extreme, isn't it? God's judgment on this nation is about as bad as it can ever get. And yet this is the same God who said to Jeremiah, just maybe a hundred years later, another prophet, Jeremiah, he said to him, Jeremiah, if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and I will not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Now since we know that God is consistent in his character and his treatment of the people, the fact that he will go ahead with this judgment upon the people of Israel, this awful judgment, just shows to us the extent of Israel's sin. And the fact that uh, they have rejected him to such an extent that that rejection is embedded in their everyday life and relationships. It's simply part of them now. They will not turn back. They will not be faithful to the historical covenant. And as I was reflecting on this, I thought to myself, how foolish is the person who says to you, you're... You're limiting your life being a Christian now. Why don't you just live and enjoy your life, live your life through, and then at the end of your life you can turn to God and then share in the great blessings that he will give you as well. You can get both. What's the reality? Very few people do that 
because their sin and rejection of God over many years hardens their hearts. And humanly speaking, they cannot change. Unless God in his grace steps in, which we know is the gospel promise, there will be no turning back. These people in Israel would not change. And so there was no turning back. And history tells us that this hardened people of Israel, of Hosea's generation, when Assyria got their act together, they came down and pounded all the little, little nations again and they came to Israel and they utterly smashed Israel. Cities were destroyed and many of the people were killed and most of those who weren't killed were carried off to, to uh, other parts of the world far enough so it was very hard to get back and they were made to settle in those parts of the world. And others from those parts of the world were brought to Israel and settled there in Israel. And um, there in Israel, a mixed race of people grew up, which became known in, or were known in New Testament times as the Samaritans. And their impurity as a community was partly why the Jews of Jesus' day regarded the Samaritans as an inferior people. You remember some of the arguments that, that, were, um, that were had there. So right at the very start of this book, from God's own mouth, we hear that God has divorced his people of Hosea's generation. The covenant with them will be ended. And so we ask the question, does that mean that this is the end, full stop? Did you notice when it was being read that when you get to chapter to verse 10, there's a very quick change in mood. Did you notice that? Have a look at verse 10. For verse, from verse 2 to verse 9, we'll be talking about judgment in its, in, its, in its worst possible form. But you'll have a look now at verse 10. Verse 10 has a promise in it. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. Now, where have we heard that before? Something like that. Anyone... Take us back to a time when that sort of promise was made a long time previous to this. And who was it made to? Who? Abraham. Well done. Thank you, Rex. Yeah, Abraham. Do you remember that? In, in when God promised it to Abraham, he, he said, look up to the stars and count them. If you can count them, that's how many people are going to be in my covenant. My people will be huge. As history goes on, uh, when, he, when he repeated these promises to Abraham's uh, line, he said to Jacob uh, these words, I will surely make you prosper. I'll make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. That's basically what he's saying here, isn't it? What do these words spell out to the nation of Israel, those who were left after God's judgment had fallen? What do these words spell out to us? They spell out H-O-P-E. Hope in the most wonderful terms because what God is saying here in verse 10 straight away as his answer is, I'm going to restore what I have smashed. Hosea's generation did feel God's judgment. We just saw that in the strongest possible way. But the love of God 
looks beyond such an ungodly generation and past them to the future. And God's love here, as he speaks in the rest of the verses in the chapter, is shown to be the ultimate love of all. I'm calling it ultimate because, number one, it's the highest love ever. That is, it's the highest form of love that we can witness or experience. You cannot know a love greater than the love that God has for us. We talk about this a lot, don't we? But it's so true. Wonderful to know that the creator of all loves us with the highest love ever. And its character and its power is such that he can bring salvation out of judgment. Now, who else can do that? But he brings salvation out of judgment. If you remember some of the Bible stories that you know, have a reflect uh, on it and just... You may well have noticed how often the Bible talks about salvation springing out of judgment. And we oughtn't to miss here uh, the fact that God isn't just promising this future generation that he's now talking about, a restoration to where the older generation had been. No. He's actually drawing them even closer to himself, like a father or a mother might open up their arms to give their child a great big hug after something particularly meaningful has happened between them. He's, he's binding them closer to himself, not finishing things off forever. So God's love is ultimate in the, in the sense that it's the highest form of love we can ever know. But secondly, it's ultimate because in the end it has the final say. He has a final say about the plans for his people and he hasn't thrown away his covenant relationship with his people forever. He has a glorious future for them. And in verse 10 through to chapter 2, verse 1, that future is described. There are four particular words as we finish. I just want to um, uh, treat with you because they're so helpful in helping us to see this glorious future that God has in store. The four words are these. Um, in verse 10, sonship. He says, they will be called sons that breed children of the living God. Um, unity, verse 11. The people of Judah and what's left of the people of Israel will be reunited. They hadn't been united for hundreds of years, but they'll be reunited, verse 11. Verse 11 again, there'll be one leader over them. This nation of Israel, you probably don't realise, but um, leadership changed as each king was killed by the one who wanted to be king next. Some only lasted six months in the job. You can read it yourself. They were not used to um, stability. They weren't used to being one leader over them. But God is saying there'll be one leader who will remain leader um, uh, always. Verse 11. And fourthly, blessing. Now I need to just explain this last one a little bit. Um, See verse 11. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. They'll appoint one leader and they will come up out of the land. It's a bit strange that, isn't it? Um, For great will be the day of Jezreel. There's the word again, Jezreel. Remember what we said um, about what the word Jezreel means? It means God sows. And I I think what um, is being said here is that 
um, God will bring out of the land of Israel great prosperity once again, but it will be guided and governed and directed by him. It will be like the great day of uh, God's kingdom, the day of Jezreel, where God will sow blessing amongst his people. And where, see verse 1 of chapter 2, where it'll be said of, of the, your brothers, my people and your sisters, my loved one. Rest, restored in the covenant, but in a greater and deeper and more wonderful way. And when you, when you get to the New Testament, to the early days of the church, um, they begin to realise what this means for them. A- and hence for us. When God restated his covenant... He had his eyes not only on the reunited Israel, but he had his eyes also on the Gentiles, those who didn't belong to Israel at all, who hadn't ever shared in his covenant promise. In other words, he looked ahead beyond this situation where he would include all people everywhere across the world. Have a listen to Peter when he wrote uh, his first letter. He wrote to, his congregation was a mixed church, had Jews and Gentiles in it. And this is what he said to them, including them all. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the prophecy of Hosea, made 750 to 800 years previous. What about the promise of sonship? Have a look at Galatians 4. Look it up if you want. It's Galatians 4 verse 4. I'll read it to you. When the time had fully come, God sent his son that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our heart, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son... God has made you also an heir. Sonship is so basic and fundamental to New Testament understanding of our belonging to God. What about the promise of unity? Um, He's speaking about the former enmity between Jews and Gentiles. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, For Christ himself is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And what about the leader that he mentions in um, verse 11? Well, we know who that is, don't we? Listen how Paul promotes him in Colossians 1. He says, he is before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And finally, what about the blessing? We could go so many places in the New Testament, but listen to this from Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Hosea's prophecy was made so long ago, but it makes us look with soberness at both God's perfect justice and his perfect love. 
Uh, let's not make the mistake of thinking that he can only show one of those at a time. Either his justice or his love. No, he holds both of those things together at all times and in all circumstances. And if the church, if a church or an individual within the church who claims to be in relationship with God nevertheless continues to deliberately sin, to refuse to listen to God's word, to harden their hearts, they identify themselves as not belonging to God and his people at all. They're not part of his covenant relationship and God's judgment is what they're heading for. He will give them up. Just read Romans chapter 1. On the other hand, God's love is ultimate. It is supreme. Nothing can stand in its way so that anyone who hears God's word and trusts in him will be saved. He even brings salvation out of judgment, shows his love in the midst of the shadow, and the cross of Christ is the best example of all. As we reflect upon Hosea chapter 1, which, as I said, starts with a bang, let's pray and bring our thoughts to God. Our dear Heavenly Father, the only reason you have ever given us for saving us in Christ is because you love us. Teach us to honour our partnership with you and to live with you in obedience to your word. We pray that being rooted and established in love, we might have the power together with all Christians everywhere to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Well, friends, we've heard Hosea 1. The beginning of our sermon series starts with a bang. It's time now for us to reflect, uh, to think over what we've been hearing. You might like to write down some thoughts, one thing, two things, three things that have impacted you, that have encouraged you, that have challenged you uh, about your relationship with God. There's a spot inside your service sheet you can write down, a thought that you can take home and keep reflecting on that. You might also like to take out the little uh, square card inside your service sheet. And if you have any questions about the Hosea uh, series, then drop those down on there and Chris and I will uh, read through those and get back to you. Uh, If there are things that are happening in your life, uh, your heart is feeling broken at the moment for whatever reason, and you'd like prayer, then drop those down on that care card and would love to pray with you and for you for those things. I'll give you a moment or two just to pause and to reflect on what we've heard. Uh, from God's word tonight, and then we're going to stand uh, and sing of God's love.
As you reflect on Hosea, uh, 